most white people in this country live in a world that, for all intents and purposes, doesn't include police. They don't see police. Police don't show up at their house. They don't ever really have to call police. They're not tailed by police or pulled over by police. For them, police is not a problem. They have the kinder, gentler version of police. Capital requires this autonomous state power that's not meant to be accountable. And this goes directly in the face of so much common sense, use of civil liberties, the liberal ideology about a liberal democracy. I refer often to Martin Luther King in the context of the civil rights movement. He said, I have no time for the tranquilizing drug of gradualism and incrementalism. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical, it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! I want the truth! Now, let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. Hey folks, this is Steve with Macron Cheese. You might already know that Real Progressives has an informal webinar series called RP Live. It gives our volunteers direct access to all kinds of interesting experts. We like to turn some of these webinars into podcast episodes for those who prefer to get their information this way. This week's podcast is from a recent RP Live with David Correa and Tyler Wall, the co-authors of Police, a Field Guide. We did an interview with David about a month ago, and I don't know about the rest of you, but I learned an enormous amount about the history and the role of the police in our society. It's mind-blowing. Now, you get to hear the two of them together. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to RP Live. Enjoy the evening, everyone. Call me John. Go ahead. Well, thank you, Mom Red. You're looking lovely as always. And thanks, everyone, for coming and joining us again. This is going to be a really good one. So if you haven't heard the macaron and cheese podcast we did with David Correa recently, it's amazing. And his book, I haven't read it yet, but it's in the mail. Check out our macaron and cheese podcast every Saturday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern. You can listen to it at our website or Spotify or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Steve Grumbine does The Rogue Scholar. It's a little live stream at noon Eastern. And also visit our website, realprogressives.org, as we are republishing the entire archives of new economic perspectives. And that's a pretty big deal. And always feel free to donate to us at patreon.com slash realprogressives. We run solely on your donations to bring you this cool content and our social medias and all that stuff. I'm going to let these guys introduce themselves and give their bios and a little background and do their thing. And then we'll do some Q and A. So the floor is yours, gentlemen. Thanks. We're thinking about making our comments brief so we can make this more of a conversation. So easily less than 30 minutes. My name is David Correa. I'm a professor at the university of New Mexico in the department of American studies. Tyler and I 
co-wrote Police a Field Guide, which came out in 2018 with Verso. A revised edition was published last year. It's an interesting book in that the field guide concept is not a gimmick. It's really like a series of entries, terms and concepts and things about police from the perspective of police. We want to understand the police view of the world so that we understand what it is we're up against. I've written other things. You can find me on websites that list stuff like that. My name's Tyler Wool. I'm an associate professor in sociology at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. I write on policing. I'm a critic of police. That's kind of the main thing that I write on. David and I did the Verso book, Police is Old Guide in 2018, like you said, but we also did in 2021 an edited book with Haymarket Books called Violent Order Essays on the Nature of Police. So I'd recommend everybody take a look at that. There's a lot of other authors in that that write on the links between the environmental movements and policing and the television show Dexter. So there's all kinds of stuff in there. The title of this is Reform or Abolition. And if that's a question, then the answer is abolition and we're done. <laughs> Let's call it a night. But we'll flesh it out a little bit more. I thought what would be useful, since no one really takes police seriously, even criminologists don't take cops seriously. Criminologists, even Foucault didn't take them seriously. But even criminologists don't really take cops seriously. They think of them as public servants or functionaries or bureaucrats. If they fuck up, then oh, we just have to change some policies and some laws and fix it. And that's not taking cops seriously. Tal and I are interested in taking police and policing seriously. If we're going to do that, we have to start by understanding we're putting police as we know it in the historical context. So I want to do that briefly. Then Tyler's going to expand on that a little bit. Say a few things about reform as we know it today, as it's practiced in this country and in other settler societies or Western countries. And then that's all we're going to do. And then we'll leave it open for Q&A. So let's talk a little bit about the history of police as we know it. If you saw the podcast that I did with Steve, I talked a little bit about that. I just finished a book with Haymarket on the 1902 anthracite coal strike, which my argument in the book is this moment, this 1902 is a moment where police, as we know it, are born. And so I want to talk a little bit more about that particularly the period prior to 1902, as a segue into talking about this question, well, what is police? When we talk about police, what are we talking about? So one of the common claims that particularly liberals, progressives make about police is the importance of public and professional police, as though this is a common sense notion about what democratic policing would look like. And one of the reasons why they can get away with this is because there's just not a lot good out there. There aren't any good histories of police, really. There's some targeted ones. Stuart Schrader's got a good book that charts the internationalization of policing and this cross-border relationships among basically the way that the United States exported policing and then imported a version of counterinsurgency policing back to the United States. There's some others. But usually, even people on the left, when they reference histories of police, it's almost without citation. Police were the slave patrol. Police were the colonial militia. And while that might be true in a broad sweep, I think it's important to look really specifically at what we're talking about when we say like police come out of the slave patrol, the police that we have today come out of colonial militias. And there's often very little effort in those stories 
that talk about class or the role of police and building the infrastructure for a capitalist society, a capitalist economy. And let me just do that briefly. And Tyler, go ahead and like totally interrupt me. You're doodling. I hope you're taking notes and not like taking notes. This is a webinar, Tyler. I know. When I was working on this book that I just completed, it was fascinating to really read a lot of this mid 19th century discussions, debates going on about political economy, because as probably maybe most of the listeners who are watching this know, the settling of this country was a commercial enterprise. The Commonwealth the Pennsylvania was a commercial enterprise. So the job of the state was just to charter corporations that would extend an enhanced commercial enterprise, but not just a commercial enterprise, also a political project and a partisan political project largely. And so it made sense in that context, in the late 1700s, early 1800s context in which policing or the coercive capacity to enforce property relations that were necessary for that commercial expansion to create private sector policing. As I pointed out in the podcast, you name the industry and they have their own policing, railroad police, steamboat police, coal police, merchant police, eater police, goes on and on. And this was until the progressive era, really just after the strike of 1902 in Eastern Pennsylvania, this was taken for granted. This was the only way it could be done. It made the most sense because of course, these commercial enterprises are private enterprises. And so it was up to them to defend their own commercial interests. And it isn't until after 1902 that this shifts, the pressure early progressive era reforms focusing on the idea that somehow all of the problems of policing and the problems at the time, by the way, weren't that cops were killing people, even though they were. The problem was that the killing of people produced economic instability. It interrupted stable industrial production. And that was the problem. That was the problem that progressive era reformers identified with police, that the violence of police eroded public support for police And therefore, the solution would be creating a public police. When we talk about reform later, one of the things we're going to talk about is the way in which most abolitionist criticisms of police or calls for abolition are deemed naive or dismissed as juvenile, as though police, this is another way in which people don't take police seriously, as though police were just given to us from on high. But police as we know it was constructed. There is a political accomplishment. It wasn't haphazard. It wasn't ad hoc. It was carefully constructed. It was built. And so when we talk about abolition, we're talking about building a world beyond police, the police we have, just like the police that we have now were carefully constructed. After the strike of 1902 that I talked about in the podcast, there was this all hands on deck effort, a propaganda effort to build this idea for a new police, the need for a new police legislative efforts that were linked. And I write about this in the book. All these states, particularly East Coast states, linking their efforts, sharing legislative language to produce very specific kinds of public police funded in very specific ways to produce specific outcomes. So, and all of it was really around disciplining labor. It was entirely around disciplining labor. The idea of strikes as being disruptive and particularly coal strikes, because, of course, coal provided the fuel for every other industry. So labor had to be disciplined. The only way to do that was through police. 
the argument of early labor leaders, particularly United Mine Workers leaders, were, no, we'll discipline labor. We don't need your cops to do it. We'll do it. They basically promised to be labor's police. And in a lot of cases, behave that way, too. So the police we have, if we can't draw a straight line from the slave patrol and the colonial militia to the police we have, I think we can draw a straight line from the transformative and disruptive strikes of the early 20th century period to the coal strikes that really called into question a particular kind of order. And it was an order based on total control of capital that dictated the terms and conditions of labor. And when labor was strong enough to oppose it, that order broke down and a new kind of mechanism to control labor, to produce a stable industrial order was required. And my argument is the birth of police as we know it. And the reason I make that argument, I'm going to throw it to Tyler now, is because when we talk about police, we're talking about order. When Tyler and I talk about police, we're not only talking about cops in uniform. We're talking about the logic of coercive authority required to fabricate and sustain a particular order. And that's an order of capital and private property. You don't have cops, you don't have private property. As we make the point in the book, I think clearly, if you're going to have a system built on exclusion, someone's got to guarantee that exclusion. And that's cops. And in order to talk about reform and abolition, I think we really need to understand what we're talking about. So police, as we know, it is a constructed political project. And the role of reform in that project is to basically resolve the contradictions inherent to the violence of police and sustaining that order. But now that we have this just brief like history of police and its broad strokes, we should shift very specifically and talk about what is police when we talk about it? Because Tyler and I talk about it more broadly than just cops in uniforms. So Tyler. Yeah. To jump off what David just said, one thing that I would clarify is I think what he's saying too is that policing doesn't just reproduce an already existing order as if there's some order separate from police. But he used the word fabricate, which is one of our colleagues, Mark Neoklos, wrote a great book on this called The Fabrication of Social Order on Policing. But that the police actually actively fabricate an order. They help produce the order of capital. It's not just that there's capital and it exists. Police come in and kind of help reproduce it. The police are producers of the order. They help actually fabricate it, which is another way that I often explain this to people is that if you accept that, then that means policing isn't a sideshow to capitalist political economy. That if actually it's part of the main stage, it's part of it. The capital kind of requires this particular coercive capacity concentrated in a police apparatus to kind of help actually actively produce an order of private property. It's hard to even imagine that order without having some type of special power to be able to help actively produce an order. This is kind of going to what David kind of alluded to, but I often ask people, what is police? Because it's a simple question on the surface, but then it gets more complicated the more we dig into it. And it's also a good way of then pushing back, I guess, on kind of commonsensical myths. So we often hear police being conflated with law enforcement, crime fighting, things like that, right? There's narrowing of the police function into these activities. 
even though empirically speaking, we've known forever, essentially, police do very little enforcing of the law. This is well established by sociological, criminological research for a long, long time. And they do very little real what we would think of as crime fighting. I don't know the most current numbers, but a decade ago, it was like the average cop in the United States makes a felony arrest once every four months. And most police don't ever pull out their firearm during their career. So it's not law enforcement. It's not crime fighting. It is about this fabrication of order. And this leads to questions about reform and abolition. What I would say about what the question, what is police? Policing is a prerogative power. What we mean by that is policing isn't actually the same as law in the standard sense. The way I describe it, and I'm using other people's work here, but is to think about police as kind of like the law's admission of the law's failure to be able to compel people to do what the law wants them to do. That policing is kind of that special force. And, and that means it is kind of the concentration of the state's monopoly of violence. It is a kind of concentration of that violence. It's a coercive capacity, as David said. And this is kind of integral to the way then capital and property has to function or operate. But by prerogative power, what we mean by that is that it's kind of a power that is inscribed in law, but it always exceeds it. It's an emergency power, an ordinary emergency, the way that I've described it in some of my independent work. It's an ordinary emergency power. To police everything is a potential emergency. Everything is an emergency. And that becomes one of its key logics, its key justifications. It presents itself as counterviolence to some other anarchic kind of violence always lurking. But also in terms of violence, in this concentration of monopoly of state violence, the violence is built into it. And that doesn't mean violence in the sense of hitting someone on the head with a nightstick all the time. It means that the threat of violence is inherently built into police. That is what makes police kind of a unique, special power compared to other institutions. And it's a generalized capacity, meaning the private security guard is definitely part of a police power, but their power of coercion is very limited to the Target or to Walmart or whatever that private entity is, where the policing is kind of the broad, generalized coercive capacity of the state. You leave one jurisdiction, you go right into another jurisdiction of policing. But the violence of police, which is always fabricating this order of capital, it's also non-negotiable and non-reciprocal, meaning it is, I would say, despotic in a certain way, meaning the law recognizes no real legitimate resistance to policing by and large. You can always find specific examples, this and that, but the law doesn't really recognize you have no choice. It's non-negotiable. It's non-reciprocal. One of my favorite formulations is from another author, Evan Calder-Williams, where he talks about police. There's no such thing as an equal exchange between a cop and a subject, meaning there's no equal exchange. It's fundamentally asymmetrical, and that's built into the actual legal architecture of policing. And so what this means then, and hopefully I'm being clear here, but if not, we can clarify in Q&A. When I said it's a prerogative power, meaning the standard liberal account that we have of policing in a liberal democracy is that the law holds police accountable. The idea that law trumps the police. And in fact, in the 
so-called global north, we often judge entire nations based on them being a police state because the ideology behind that is that their police trumps law. And in fact, that's, I think, one of the key mythologies of policing in a place like the United States that follows some kind of a liberal democratic structure, which is the law is supposed to hold policing accountable. It's the rule of law that rules over policing and policing has to be accountable to it. But if we think about policing in the way we write about it in the field guide, is that if, in fact, it's a prerogative power that kind of exceeds law, when I said it polices the law's admission of its own failure, that's a way of saying that the police power is actually not meant to be accountable. It is that special, what James Baldwin, the great American author in his 1966 famous report from Occupied Territory, he refers to policing as an arrogant autonomy an arrogant autonomy because it is autonomous. And this is backed up even by other less critical scholars, that there is an institutional autonomy to policing as an institution. And that meaning the key question people always ask, how do you police the police, is kind of an interesting thought experiment because how do you police something that is not supposed to be policed, that it's supposed to be removed from law and also then as part of the state, be above the state. The idea that the state intervenes autonomously, it hovers over civil society, so to speak. And so I guess that's what I'm trying to get across here is that we have to start from the idea that capital requires this autonomous state power that's not meant to be accountable. And this goes directly in the face of so much common sense, views of civil liberties, the liberal ideology about a liberal democracy. And so that means one reason why policing is always at the center of so many struggles. One, it's always the last resort that you see. You have to go through police in order to affect any type of change because they're the stopgap that prevents any type of change. And to do that, then capital and the capitalist state requires this autonomous, this arrogantly autonomous police force in order to, quote, get shit done without necessarily waiting on the slow, deliberative process of legal reasoning or juridical legal kind of maneuvering. The things need to be done now. That's the emergency part of it. So we need police to handle it. And the one thing that I would say then quickly on law and police is that one way to think about police and laws not being necessarily the same is that law tends to follow Meaning law comes in always retroactively after the fact. This is why I say the police is both inside the law but outside it at the same time. Meaning the law gives police, cops, and the institution basically virtually unlimited discretionary prerogative to decide how to handle shit. And the law then gives them that authority. And Marcus Dubber, the great legal theorist, talks about police discretion the ability to make decisions, the, the courts have historically refused to define discretion because the defined discretion is to draw a line around it, is to limit it, is to limit the police power. But it's not meant to do that. So that's why the courts always refuse to define it because to define police then is to set parameters around it. And the law essentially says you can never give a cop predetermined things they can't do when they run into that building because you never know what's going to be on the other side of that building. So there's this blank check, carte blanche power of police. So that's one way to think about it. And then the other way is that 
the law always comes in retroactively. The law gives the police the authority to shoot someone down, and the courts only come in after the fact to determine if that was, quote, constitutional or not. And yet, of course, the law can't give back the mother, her son, who was shot down in the street. So the law always follows the police. It gives this carte blanche power, but at the same time, then only comes in after the fact. So this is that emergency power that we're talking about, the prerogative. So so where I would wrap up my comments is to say, this is what reform is trying to do on some level. How do you police a power that's not really supposed to be policed, not supposed to be held accountable? And reform then is an effort. One, what we're saying is that's why policing is always at the center of these struggles, because it's this autonomous force that gets to intervene in all kinds of circumstances. And so reform then becomes a certain promise of policing the police, of making it accountable, of bringing up the hill on some level, making up follow certain kinds of rules, putting boundaries around it. And yet what we would suggest is that reform fails at that. And that's the key logic of policing itself. Yeah, that's a good segue into reform. And let me just say something briefly and then we'll get to Q&A. That's a great way to get to reform because the way that Tyler and I think about reform is in this context, in that the violence of police that is necessary to fabricate and defend the system, but that violence produces chaos and disorder that threatens that system. It includes in it the contradictions that threaten to undermine it. And it is reform that resolves those contradictions. That's the role of reform, to resolve the internal contradictions that police create through the use of their violence. Usually it's the violence that is an extraordinary, exceptional, shocking violence. Like in the podcast, I talked about James Boyd in Albuquerque or Mike Brown in 2014, or Floyd, that threatened to really upend that discretion, that threatened to actually impose an accountability that can't be imposed. And that's the role of reform. And we actually look at reform empirically. We could take examples. We could take specific cases. The results are always about shoring up legitimacy. And the aftermath is more cops, more weapons, and more capacity to engage in coercive activity. And that's not our critical analysis here. Listen to cops and particularly Democratic politicians describing the problem. And they will say straight up, The problem is a lack of faith in police. The problem is police community relations. The problem is not cops killing little kids. The problem is lack of faith in police because of this bad apple cop. And so we could have a conversation about types of reform. I think there's plenty of thinkers that abolitionists who talk about what they call non-reformist reform. If some reform robs cops of resources, robs them of weapons, robs them of personnel, then that's not the same thing as the reformist, oh, we're going to raise standards. We're going to give them more non-lethal weapons. There are distinctions to be made, and we could talk about those if anyone wanted to. But I think we don't see reform as some sort of external factor or force operating on police. It's part of the logic of police. It's built into it. There has to be a way to resolve the contradictions that emerge from the use of violence. If you've had any contact with cops, you understand what Tyler means, I think, by the arrogant authority. And if you've ever seen a cop use violence, 
It's just as arbitrary as any other interpersonal violence, that sort of shocking violence. And that undermines the authority that capital requires cops to have. And so there has to be some way to shore that up, to resolve that. And that's where reform comes in. So I don't see any difference between cops and reformists. They're engaging in the same project. I was just going to add one thing to think real quick on reform. There's typical reform, the standard reforms that are part of the police all the way back to the 1800s is that there's often controversy around police practices, and then there's promises of doing it better. And those promises are quite predictable and they're broad categories, but essentially typical reforms offer more training as the solution. And that training can take a variety of different anger management, how to communicate better, education. That's built into the very logic of policing historically, which is we need more educated cops and therefore we need to give them better education in service or university. That will make them better police. Technology is another one. Get, they need new technology. Why are police not doing a great job? It's because they're uneducated. They need more education. They need more technology. So they need more weapons or better communications, this and that. And one thing to say about that is often the reforms that were the promised solutions one day tend to always end up being part of the problem, the legitimacy crisis of policing another day. So classic examples. Your guess. But I've written on the history of the police dog. People don't think of the police dog as a reform but it was historically promised as a reform. There's a quote from a cop in the 1960s that says, you can't call back a bullet, but you can a dog. That's a reformist logic. Instead of shooting people, we can stick a dog on them. And of course, then we know May 1963, Birmingham, Bull Connor, in the image of the dog attacking Walter Gadsden, the black youth, then became the serious legitimacy crisis. But the police dog was a reform, even though we don't often... Think of it as reform. Dave said tear gas. Tear gas was a reform. It was a non-lethal, less lethal technology. So it was a solution one day. Rubber bullets that we saw really come onto the national scene for many people during the Floyd, Breonna Taylor uprisings of 2020. But rubber bullets, they're a reform. And yet they're also then at the heart of the policing crisis today. So the promised solutions in the past tend to always still be the problems today. Yeah. This is a question from Cheryl Van Epps. How do we get working class folks to quit putting their trust into the police, authority figures who keep doing us harm and injustice? It's like what we've been so thoroughly taught that we must respect authority, experts, leaders is so ingrained into our heads that we forget the police brutality and criminal acts we see on social media, on our own streets, our own experiences. So much so we still expect to get a fair and just outcome when we call 911. How do we break? the American public of this worldview. You want to take that? I'll take a stab. We obviously don't have the answers because if we had the answers. Yeah, if we had the answers, police would be abolished. So we don't have any answers. Yeah, but, but I do think what this great question is getting at, and I think it's something that is really hard to contend with and to think about and even maybe acknowledge as people's attachment to policing as both the practice, but also the idea. And that's why abolition seems for many people pie in the sky, either utopian, naive. I think we have to think hard about the ideological, but not just concerted 
intentional ideological views of policing. But the fact that policing is a key element of what we think about as order in society. So when we even say the question of order or society, we often smuggle in the idea of policing, the idea that you have to have this policing. And that means there's a serious, deep commitment to ideas of policing that I think actually influences all of us. There's the great quote that came out of the May 1968, kill the cop in your head. And the idea being that we all have particular identifications with authority and with policing. And that is, I think, one of the fascinating things about 2020 and the uprisings is that there was a mass unprecedented movement that really targeted the police as key to the inequality built into our contemporary society. And there was a real questioning and probing of the police as kind of an idea even. This was on the agenda. Now, are we there now? I think we've probably maybe lost some ground in some ways. But I think that's a tough question to get at, but I think it's an important question. I think historically, and the question also highlights calling the police, I think that's the concrete practice or the concrete question is how we can think about the police as somebody that we call. And that's both ideological or it's built into our society, but it's infrastructural too. You can't even call 911 without also calling the police. You can have a health emergency because policing is built into that system. But I do think we have to have these conversations with people. When my kids were young enough to have babysitters, I always have a thing that I get actually from a book talk me and Dave gave where some activists showed up and gave me some flyers they were using to work with people in Washington, D.C. had a graph saying, think twice, basically, before you call the police. And it gives a diagram to say, can you handle this problem on your own? Yes. Then handle on your own. No. Is there somebody that you know that can maybe help you do it instead of the police? It wasn't saying never call the police. It was simply trying to get people to think that we can handle a lot of problems on our own without resorting to calling the police. The only thing I would add to that, I think it's a great question. And it's hard sometimes to talk about this when we're keeping two things in our head. One is the police we have. And one is what is it we're talking about when we talk about police? Because if we're talking about the working class, working class folks, it's a question of interests and the great victory of destroying the union movement and destroying the solidarity of working people has been to then shift their interests and align them with capital. And cops serve the interests of capital. And so if your interests align with capital, then you're going to call cops. And so working class or anybody sees their interests align and served by capital, then police are not somebody they're interested in abolishing. They want more cops. They want tougher cops. They want cops with more guns. So I think the way to do that is to build a different kind of class-based movement. Talk to them about this in the podcast. When I was talking about 1902 and the birth of police as we know it, it was just as much an accomplishment of union leaders who were just as much subscribed to this idea of industrial stability at all costs. And if you needed cops to do it, then so be it. And if that's the end-all be-all, if that's the highest goal, industrial stability, then we're stuck with the cops we have. And so this idea of a union movement serving this pocketbook, if it's just wages and working conditions, then we're stuck with the cops we have. We have to have a broader social movement rooted in class-based analysis, I think, to really sever that tie between cops and the working class. 
Here's one from Karen Caligari. In the interview with Steve, you talked about how Americans have been trained to fear others, which leads to that mistaken belief that we need police to help protect us from criminals, bad guys, etc. Do you have some suggestions how Americans can organize their communities in a way that people feel safe without feeling the need to have an authoritarian group like the police maintaining order? This gets back to what Tyler was saying about what is police. There can't be a competing order because that then undermines the order that police fabricate and defend. So there's always a vacuum. A 911 has to be the only option. And so that's why that great flowchart by those activists at in DC was interesting because it requires constructing alternatives at a neighborhood scale, at the scale of a street. I remember 15 years ago, my sister-in-law was being harassed by this guy who lived next to her. He was just like walking into her house, just scaring the hell out of her. And my mother-in-law and I just went and confronted the guy. And we knocked on his door. We're like, you're moving out tonight. And we were standing there. And I was hollering at the guy. And we didn't know the neighbors because it wasn't our street. It was her street. These neighbors come over and they're like, what's going on here? And at first they're a little upset at us. And then I explain what happens. And they're all like, well, don't call the cops. No, no, we're not calling the cops. He's like, we got this. And so the guy was moved out in two days. This is not a prescription for everyone to do, but I'm just saying that it requires taking up an awful lot of labor from police, doing an awful lot of labor and constructing it on our own. There's resources out there. Steve asked a question about what we do. Interrupting Criminalization is a group that has been doing a lot of work in political education. Is there a website, interruptingcriminalization.com? I think that's right. Miriam Cobb is involved in that group. I'd really recommend Miriam Cobb and Andrew Smith's new book, No More Police. One of the things I would say is, I think definitely there's a lot more people. If you really want to talk abolition, I think to have on something like this that really is actively working on this on a concrete level. But that's what abolitionists do. I think that's one of the things to highlight is to try to build alternative ways of handling problems while still taking real interpersonal harms seriously. So abolition comes out of largely black and brown women, grassroots organizing and activism of trying to address certain problems within their communities that they saw police actually making worse. And so I'm thinking of a thing that our friend Rachel Herzing, great abolitionist organizer called Build the Block, trying to work with people in Oakland. George Chicarello Mayer's subtitle of his book, World Without Police, is Strong Communities Make Police Obsolete. But the Build the Block project, as I understand it, was working within a local community of trying to cultivate a praxis of community solidarity that could handle most of their day-to-day emergencies and problems. So what that looked like was going to people and explaining and trying to have conversation, political education about why we don't necessarily want police in our neighborhoods. They tend to cause more problems, increases the chances of violence, families being separated through incarceration, someone getting arrested. And then looking to leaders within the community that had particular skills. So there was an EMT that agreed to handle a lot of basic medical problems instead of calling the cops in 911. And so they create phone trees and certain types of 
networks in order to solve a lot of their problems. And I think this is important to keep in mind thinking about abolition where it's easy to think of abolition as just either no police or not, but it's really about building particular kinds of relationships and communities and practices that doesn't necessarily have to rely upon the police or the larger carceral apparatus. Yep. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube. And follow us on TikTok, Twitter, Twitch, Rockfin, and Instagram. All right. Yeah. I just wanted to jump in real quick and go off of that. And that was one of the observations as I start looking at things through a class analysis lens. It seems like police are set up as the only resource for poor people, basically in an emergency. They don't make things better. But one of the things I noticed listening to the macaron cheese podcast is when you mentioned the coal miners striking in the early 1900s and how the public opinion was police were pretty good until they started seeing what was going on and they were like brutalizing the coal miners that were striking to where it shifted public opinion to the coal miner side. And again, another observation I've made is I started to see things a little more clearly, just how much copaganda is in TV and movies and just how thick and aggressive it's laid on in everything. And it's almost like you start making those connections and you start realizing why. And I just wonder if you could weave that into how effective it is. Does it need to be that effective or they need it because of stuff like the public opinion shifting away from the police are good. If you can expand on that, maybe. One of the things that you said, I think also in the context of neoliberal capital, where the social welfare state, whatever there was, has been gutted. It is the carceral apparatus, including the police, that is still standing. And so in a lot of poor communities, it is the carceral and police apparatus that's the only semblance of some type of welfare regime in these communities. And we have to contend with that. It's pervasive. We don't write a lot about that in the book. We focus a little bit on what we call counterinsurgency. A lot of what cops do, we would recognize as a counterinsurgent practice, like coffee with cops and take a bite out of crime and the D.A.R.E. program, shit like that. And actually, Tyler mentioned in Violent Order, the book that we co-edited, there's a chapter on Dexter, and there was another chapter too that talked a little bit about the role of media and cops. I think that's pretty important because it establishes a specific cultural content in which we consume police which is much different than the version on the street. <laughs> I think the question of propaganda, what you're getting at, John, is really important 
because it also helps us think about policing as an idea that circulates in society in very pervasive ways. And so even storytelling, it's so hard. Even if you watch a romantic comedy, it seems like the police and quote crime, which often then signals towards police, is present in even the most mundane kind of representations in Hollywood. Just a little aside, I've never told anyone, but I don't know if you've seen the Nicolas Cage movie, Pig. But one reason why I love it, and I won't give any spoilers, but it's a very kind of weird, eccentric movie about restaurant workers, and there's definitely a class analysis built into it. The pro premise is these people steal a truffle pig, and a guy depends on living on this truffle pig, and he just wants his pig back. But why I think it's so interesting, one day I want to write something on this, is that the whole time you think of the viewer, it's going to go toward kind of like the Hakeland series. You've taken my pig, now I'm going to come and kick your ass, or I'm going to call the cops and they're going to kick your ass. And it doesn't do that. It's a movie that has no cops in it, but the whole time as a viewer, you think it's going to go there and it kind of subverts it. But I think propaganda should be addressed on two levels. One is there's a concerted attempt. There's a parallel here with military. Then there's books written on the links between the military and Hollywood and how the military won't give even certain technology to producers and directors unless they get to review the script. And there's definitely a long history of that, of police being consultants for Hollywood with explicit purpose of promoting pro-cop representation. But then there's also that other thing about why true crime is so popular is because it's not just pure manipulation. There's a certain kind of identification with it. It's part of the very kind of narrative fabric of our lives where there's that explicit intentional manufacturing of a pro-cop world. But there's also this larger, when we think about order, we tend to think about police and then threats to that order. And so there's something also very diffuse about it too, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I didn't watch TV for a while and then I would put it on in the background and I was just blown away by how many CSI, NCIS, Law and Order. There's like a million cop shows. And it's right. all to paint the police as this honorable moral code and all this other stuff. And it's just crazy just how much there is. And also, even the stuff we might think of as critical or something like The Wire or something also trades in this familiar, the job, the individual cop burdened by the system, trying to fight both the system and crime. And so it does position cops as honorable figures, even in the wire. So it's everywhere. No, I, I agree. I tell people the most accurate representation of cops in TV and media is cops on The Simpsons. Yes. Yes. We're <laughs> moving on to Jonathan Cadman. Go ahead and unmute your mic, buddy. Hi. Pleasure to make your acquaintance in person. I have a great interest in this topic. I did read the book, but it was short, so I took the liberty of rereading that book that I told you about in preparation for this, which honestly, the thing that strikes me is the degree to which a lot of this did start, as you described in the podcast, in the private sector. And there was a process probably around the time period you described of beginning to insource these things into the public sector. But as you pointed out in several little entries in the field guide, 
that hasn't diminished the private sector. Yeah. There's more security guards out there now than there have ever been in the past. And many of these same organizations remain around. Pinkerton and Burns have merged and are part of Securitas. And I wondered if you talk about how private actors are instrumentalized by these quote unquote public police forces, not just security firms, but also civic organizations. Back in the World War I era, you had the Liberty League and the American Legion. And today you have these misinformation organizations that are handing lists of people to the FBI to hand to Twitter and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I wonder what entry you're thinking of. The revised version, we wrote a few entries that really got into this a little bit more than in the 2018 one. And I'm thinking of, there's an entry in the new version called Data Center that I think gets at the privatization of policing, but it's a different iteration of it. And it's something that I was really spending a lot of time at the beginning of the pandemic investigating after the Blue Leaks hack. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that. If you haven't read the book, we mentioned in the book, Anonymous or somebody, some hackers broke into, I'm not sure what exactly they broke into. I think it was one of the fusion centers. Every state in the United States now has what are called fusion centers, which are supposed to be huge public sector data centers that connect all the data that all the various police agencies collect. So state, municipal police, and all the county sheriffs. And then you've got feds. And then even within a city like Albuquerque, for example, there's like seven different police departments. There's the open space department, metropolitan police, and there's the municipal development has their own police. And they're all collecting data. And then there's all these private firms that are selling to cops, like vendors, private vendors, selling machines to cops so they can capture license plates, facial recognition, Videos that they're stitching together so that like in Albuquerque, for example, hotels and restaurants and retail establishments connect their video to the real-time crime center police and the real-time crime centers and connected to the fusion center in Santa Fe. And so when Blue Leaks dropped, I mean, this was like data from every department. And the thing that I noticed, which I thought was fascinating, was the way in which, I don't know if this is the right phrase we use, correct me if I'm wrong, but. Cops are not like Silicon Valley drug mules. That's basically what cops are. Seven or eight private vending firms selling cops various different devices or machines to capture data. But then they're holding that data on private servers that cops can access. But those private firms like Celebrite, for example, they're harvesting social media data for cops. The firms that capture license plates, facial recognition, all that stuff's private so that Cops are basically just collecting data for private firms that are then monetizing that in all kinds of ways. And so it's almost impossible to really define policing now because of the extent to which the information that cops collect finds its way everywhere. If we're going to talk about police, I would say probably the most sophisticated police agency in the United States is the Target Corporation who has the most sophisticated police labs that hires FBI and local police and then just gives that resource to local municipal police departments, seeding local municipal police departments with funds so they can create little mini arrangements among 
retailers and hotels and neighborhood associations who will convince their members to connect their ring cameras to the police real-time crime center. If there's one good thing some criminologists do is point out how worthless all this stuff is. If the goal is crime fighting or public safety, it does nothing. It doesn't do anything for any of this. It's just very expensive and then connects cops to these private firms to produce data for them. So in other words, policing now is this enormous activity that involves huge numbers of unknown private vending operations. It's not like the Pinkertons anymore. It's tiny little operations in Austin with server farms holding enormous amounts of police data, trying to figure out ways to monetize it. And reporters didn't give a shit about the Blue Leaks. The Intercept wrote four or five articles. Some of them were pretty good. Nobody else gave a shit about it. It was fascinating the extent to which the most sophisticated data collection machines and software programs are in the tiniest little departments. They don't even know how to use them and what to do it. And there's totally turned that over to the private sector who just are using police to capture data. So this is really fascinating. Policing now, even the anarcho-capitalists <laughs> of Silicon Valley love cops because of the way in which they serve their needs to acquire more data. I almost don't even know where to stop when talking about this because it's kind of bizarre, but also really amorphous in its role in reinforcing the authority of police because cops produce money. Local municipal police department is a source of revenue for the private sector. I have a question from Jules. So how do we get past reform and get to abolition when, as you mentioned, on macro and cheese, if we abolish the existing institution, all the cops just become private militias hired by the wealthy to continue their arrogant prerogative of protecting capital. And we're left without protection from that. And I wanted to add to that, people are talking about this idea of the private police. We're looking at that in the intelligence community, privatization of military internationally and intelligence. But also people are talking about the cameras outside of stores and in restaurants. And Jules said the option to connect storefront cameras to the police network is up for a vote in her town. And I also wanted to ask you, and I'm sorry I'm going on, but in some of the TV shows about England, they always have the CCTV. Those cops can cover every inch of their city, and it must be a combination of private and public, I assume. I'm told by a British friend that it's true that they have that. It's not just fictional in cop shows. But do you know anything about that? I was just going to, I think, address what was Jules' question about how do we get past reform to abolition. But I think what I would say to that is abolition is not something that just happens in the future, if that makes sense. Abolition isn't something that is just in the future. So you have a lot of people, oh, I'm on board with abolition, but not today. Yeah, at some point, that'd be great. So abolition, it's not something that just happens in the future. It's something that you try to practice now and build now, but it's not something you have to wait for. In the sense, that's what we're talking about, like build the block or call chains and other ways of handling problems in neighborhoods and whatnot. But that's today's work. 
as opposed to waiting for this to happen, which means then there has to be serious thinking about what is reform, what are the reforms that are what the abolitionists call the non-reformist reforms, which are the reforms that cut into the power and scope and capacity of policing and not the reformist reforms, which are those typical reforms that we talked about that shore up the legitimacy of policing. That's a struggle and a process of working through that now and then trying to build different kinds of communities, different kinds of institutions, dual power in order to create better communities, better world, so to speak. I don't know if you have anything to say on that, David. I was thinking of Ruth Wilson Gilmore's great answer to this skepticism of abolition, which is, this is not an absence. To talk about abolition is not to talk about an absence, an absence of safety or an absence of security. It's the opposite of that. Think of all we're robbed of by capitalism and cops. Capitalism is a machine to destroy social relations. That's what it does. Capitalism just obscures and destroys social relations. And the job of cops then are to hold that chaos together so there can be industrial stability and everyone can make money, or at least some can. And so abolition is not about some sort of future goal of a world free of cops, but of a present that is more present of those social relations we're robbed of. And that requires a lot of work, a lot of practice. It's a practice. I think that I wanted to just add Ruth and Gilmore's words on that. The other way, real quick, of saying that is abolition is not just negative in the sense of tearing things down or tearing things down and in building. It's kind of a simultaneous process of trying to dismantle, but at the same time, trying to build and produce other kinds of social relations, other types of institutions, organizations, practices. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Our good friend Bakari is here and he's got a question. Go ahead, buddy. Hey, thanks a lot. I think my question's already been asked. I want to just maybe then while I have the floor, I think that abolitionism is something that you don't just do that independent of the other struggles around decapitalizing the society, providing resources for people, talking about what modern money theory means in terms of the government spending money to show up the deficits in the economy, housing, food, healthcare. I think if you're not working on those things at the same time, you can't really focus on abolitionism. You have to do both. They're not separate. And that's what I tried to explain in the thread that I was in on YouTube yesterday. They're talking about these businesses closing down in San Francisco. That's what my question was about. And people were blaming it on this call for abolition and blaming it on BLM. And I said, no, it's really... The serious skyrocketing of cost of living in San Francisco, a lot of desperation. It's just really, you got to talk about people being desperate economically, financially, not having good jobs, dealing with drugs, dealing with other kinds of issues that you got to address while you try to abolitionism. So that's not really a question, but that's just my input. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I would just say. Any discussion of abolition of police and prisons has to be thinking about the abolition of capital and private property. And it's not a coincidence. That was exactly the way that Marx and Engels talked about it in the Communist Manifesto. Abolition was a term that was very much a part of their lexicon, the abolition of existing property relations. Damn right. Yeah. And I think a big hurdle is people still kind of see police as public, like a public servant or something. And they're about as 
public servant as our Congress people are. And I think getting past the idea that we need them is a big step to getting there. Next up, we have a question from the big cheese, Steve Grumby. Steve asks, what are other strong organizations and efforts we can support in this? The effort to stop Cop City in Atlanta would just be a current campaign. I think we mentioned interrupting criminalization, which is, I think, a really important effort to combine political education with practical efforts to build alternatives to police would be a couple I would suggest. I would throw in critical resistance. Angela Davis's group, is that what you're talking about? She was a co-founder with Ruthie Gilmore and Rachel Herzing and a variety of people back in the late 90s. But really a key organization that's put abolition on the map, so to speak, in many ways. Their website, too, is great with all kinds of resources. But yeah, interrupting criminalization, critical resistance. Also, these organizations are popping up in local communities. There's struggles going on everywhere. All right. Got a question from Maple in the audience. Yeah, I thought about the Guardian Angels. I'm 68 now. and I remember hearing about them. I was maybe mid-teens. And so that's mm -hmm. kind of an example. They took it upon themselves. And I think the New York City budget was getting low or whatever. Do you have any stories? Did they have permission to do that? I don't really know the background. I just thought maybe you guys had looked into that a little bit. And I'm learning so much. Thank you so much for everything. It's great. This is all new to me, kind of. <laughs> Except the violence. I'm white and I've been pulled down the ground for nothing a few times already in my 60s, being a protester and that. So I'll probably go back mm -hmm. to Atlanta next week. I was there a year ago. But yeah, it's a real problem. It's terrible. Thank you. I think the Guardian Angels, I don't know a lot about them other than I'd just say that I'm quite hesitant to think of them as abolitionists. My understanding, they're a quite conservative group, work very much hand in hand with the cops. And if I remember correctly, the founder, I think Curtis Silva, he's a pretty conservative politician. They just ran for some. Um, yeah, tries to be a politician. Tries to be a politician, but. To my understanding, I remember when I was a kid, I was in martial arts, and that's where I first learned about them. It was a very pro-police organization. I think by me and David's definition, they would be thought of as police. Now they're police. Not, not in the sense of a community-controlled police, but a very particular, still reactionary kind of police force. But there's the other parallel, which would be the Black Panthers, that did police their own communities and also did other types of programs like free breakfast, this and that, but they were linked. And that was in direct opposition to police. So it wasn't working with the police. It was saying, we're going to handle this on our own. We can set up some type of other apparatus or practice in order to handle community problems without relying on the capitalist state. The Panthers were patrolling the police. The Guardian Angels, it's an interesting case, and it's a good question, because if you look at Albuquerque, for example, Albuquerque has a long history of militia activity. It's always been cop-adjacent. It's always been staffed by cops or former cops or former military. It's never gone away. 
it emerged again in 2020 during the uprising after the murder of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And that's the only parallel armed group cops will permit. The Panthers were targets of police because they refused to be enrolled into the police project. So groups like Guardian Angels could only exist because they had the consent of police to do it. Every police department has people whose job it is to build those relationships with community groups to do community policing. Well, neighborhood watch. But it can't occur outside of the consent of police because then it's a challenge to the authority of police. Tell I love Walter Benjamin and Benjamin's argument is all law at its first instantiation is against the law. Any challenge to the authority of law it has to be destroyed. The guardian angels fit within this logic of policing. In Seattle in 2020, when they tried to set up that police-free zone, they were just constantly under the assault of police. And there's no way to build that formal, organized, particularly armed alternative to police without finding yourself targeted by police. Indeed. We've got our close comrade, Cheryl Van Epps, wants to jump in and ask a question. Hi, David and Tyler. Thank you so much for speaking to us tonight. On Facebook, a Dutch friend shared with me how their police had to account for each and every bullet they shot after a non-lethal shooting. Has any of our major cities or communities looked into how the European countries do, in my opinion, a much better job policing and how they hold their cops accountable. Thanks. Yeah, there's a lot of examples of it. I think even in that example, where did your bullet go? Well, it went into the body of the person I killed. So now we know where it is. And I don't want to be flippant about that, but let's put it this way. Most white people in this country live in a world that, for all intents and purposes, doesn't include police. They don't see police. Police don't show up at their house. They don't ever really have to call police. They're not tailed by police or pulled over by police. For them, police is not a problem. They have the kinder, gentler version of police. And so that's one of the victories of reform, which is to establish the goal of just less violence. Just let's take the hard edge up as if that's the problem. If the grinding daily violence and harassment of police is a 10, let's just dial it down to a five. And are we all happy now? Maybe some people will be very happy with that. That doesn't undo any of the purpose and role of police in society that we've been talking about. But at the same time, in 2014, after the police murdered James Boyd, and I was working with a lot of organizers on the ground, and I was spending a lot of time with family members of parents of kids who'd been killed by cops, their goal was, can we just stop the next person from being killed? They had a very practical, pragmatic goal. Can we just save one life? And that's important. That's not unimportant. And that's, I think, about this non-reformist reforms. So, show your that question is important in the sense that, okay, well, what are the proposals that are going to get us there? And if those are proposals that reduce the ability of cops to kill, to brutalize, or harass, then, okay, let's support that. We should support that. It's not the victory we're looking for, but Anything that shrinks police gets us closer to that victory. So, yeah, I think if that's the context we're talking about, then that's really an important one. Yeah, 
I was just going to add too that it is true that police in the UK, for instance, don't kill near as many people as the police in the United States do. But the police in the UK still predominantly arrest and harass the poor. And that's racialized and classed. But policing, historically, the way that it operates is it predominantly focuses on the poor and the working class, no matter where you are. That's a generalized quality. All you got to do is go to the jails in any other country, and what you find in jails are predominantly poor people. And so in the U.S., there has always historically been focused on the police killing of people. And that is, they've said it very important, but then often then this discourse gets entered, well, we can do policing like they do in Europe. The same as U.S., Canada. We frame Canada as so much better, but then we forget it's like settler colonial history. The fact that the police there also predominantly focus on indigenous people and the poor. So it's not just about direct lethal violence. It's about that administering of order, a class order. Okay, we have another yeah. question from Steve Grumbine. How do we avoid creating libertarian warlords? It seems, going back to the dissolution of the Roman Empire, chaos and death ensued, followed by warlords and such. Is this just propaganda, or is this a real thing to concern ourselves with? I don't even know where to begin to answer that question. I know. <laughs> well, it's the Roman Empire, so you've got a lot of time to fill in. <laughs> it's 8.30 my time. Wrap Very it up in time. one minute, Tyler. <laughs> I don't know how to really get at that. Exactly what you're meaning by libertarian warlord. I'm interested in that. I just think he's referring to the idea of abolishing police. What would be left behind or what would fill its place? No one who's talking about police abolition is advocating that we just tomorrow unleash 10 million unemployed armed cops. <laughs> That's not anyone's idea of a good idea. Yeah. Unless they're a libertarian warlord, I guess. They wouldn't have an army available to them. <laughs> so we're <laughs> We've actually got Steve Grumbine here. He wants to <laughs> elaborate. Go ahead, buddy. What I'm trying to get at here is not obvious because I had the pleasure being in the interview with David. So I'm actually further ahead than maybe that question read. What I was trying to say was in terms of signals that things are starting to happen, we saw before the police, you had the private police that work with capital to begin with. And you had already said it, you get rid of the police now and you end up with private police. If right. you don't make all these fundamental changes and the idea is to get rid of capital, but these are big lofty things when it comes to that stuff. But my question is, we can't even get basic things passed well, this is like fake Congress. So to me, shortage revolution, how do you bring these things to bear? And if you do bring it in chunks back to what Bakari was saying, that without doing away with private property and fundamentally taking away that destitution factor, there's going to be these problems. And one of the things we've all seen is private police, private mercenaries. We even deploy them in police actions around the globe, private militias. Yeah. 
So I guess my question is, what keeps the pendulum going from the other way? And then what do you do? This is me genuinely playing that out so that I can be ready because I want to be involved. Yeah. And maybe misguided. That's why I said as a propaganda. I guess that's why at the end of our podcast, we were talked about union organizing, which is not to say everyone go join a union because you can't, <laughs> but rather to say that the only way to make these kinds of transformations is through social movement struggle. So there has to be a mass movement of people that are pushing this. Tyler and I were talking about this before we wrote the second edition. In the first edition, no one was talking abolition. I was in meetings with the most radical people in Albuquerque. When someone talked about abolishing the police, they were just shouted down. This was in 2014. And then by 2020, this was millions of people in the street calling for the abolition of police or the defunding of police. I was shocked at how the language of abolition had taken hold. And then, of course, immediately we knew what the backlash would be. There would be this enormous backlash. And of course, it happened. But the fact that the language of police captured the imagination of so many people, brought people into the street, means that this is not some pie in the sky, small group of crazies over here talking. This idea and this argument can really capture the imagination of people and produce this huge social movement. But we shouldn't be fooled by this. Cormac McCarthy just passed away. And I was reading something he had said one time. I think it was about Blood Meridian, one of his books. And he was saying he just doesn't trust people who ignore this violence of life. There is no kumbaya future for us. We're going to have to confront these forces at some point. And better to do that when there's 10 million of us than a handful of us taking pot shots at cops from behind cars in an alley in a protest in Seattle. That's not a good strategy. That's not going to get us anywhere. We need this huge mass social movement to confront this force because this is an order that is breaking down. The order that police have been able to fabricate and maintain, it's not something that police can continue to maintain the way they are. So this is shifting. It's constantly shifting. The reform is the constant recalibration of police to meet the challenges that police are no longer able to meet. But there's nothing we're going to be able to do about that without this huge movement. And so to talk about abolition is to talk about that movement. Without that movement, then we'll have the libertarian warlords. We'll have all kinds of warlords, not just libertarian warlords. That would be the result without building the solidarity. And let's not just make this about a left movement. In 2014, we had people from the right coming to these meetings, challenging police. And it was a fragile coalition and it splintered quickly, but we're not going to have a mass movement if we're not setting aside this purity tests we have for our politics. Well, think about the private property element of it. That is a huge part of the entire mindset of a Republican slash libertarian is 100% private property, dissolution of any government institution, privatize all. So the fundamental war. Yeah you think about it, isn't the police, it's private property. And if you go that far, then it's a strange bedfellow indeed. I don't know how that works. So I'm interested in your thoughts. I appreciate the question, Steve, and the conversation. I think it is about that question of private property, but I don't know if you can have that without police, which again, leads me to, to get to that other side, you're going to have to go through policing on some level as both an idea, but also as a real capital's last resort, that stopgap. And I don't think that's an easy thing. So I think it is about building an anti-capitalist 
politics. Yeah. But I think my position is to really build an anti-capitalist politics, that's when you're going to be confronting the police because that's the function of policing in a capitalist society is to maintain that capitalist property relation. I don't know if this really addresses your question, but, and I listened to your podcast talking about the past, is that I think this is where the critique of capital really is important. Whenever I teach police class, if you don't throw in a critique of capital and the broader economic relations, I learned this the hard way. It was often the libertarian kids that were coming up to me after class really digging my critiques of police. They didn't necessarily oppose police, but they opposed the militarization of police, which is a discourse that very much comes out of the right libertarian movement. I knew this. It's easy to forget when you're in the classroom teaching that you can critique the police and then you get the libertarian students that actually really like it. And then the way to counteract that is to try to bring in the discussion around the question of private property and then the police's position within that larger system. But we have to have a critique of capital in order to avoid the libertarian critique of police, which there is. There is very much a right? government of wolves. There's this libertarian critique of police that's very much out there. But it's not so much anti-police or abolitionists. It's just police overreach onto private property. Yeah. Ruby Ridge, that kind of critique of government power and police power. Yeah, I agree. And as a card-carrying communist, when I argue with libertarians about the government and I try to be like, look, it's a tool and it serves the ruling class and that's police. It's a tool that serves the ruling class. And right now it's the rich and corporations. We're going to wrap it up pretty quick here, guys. We've got this one last question. You want to throw something on it? And then if you want to let everybody know how they can check out your content and find you on social media. So we're going to combine this. They're similar here and I'll just read it out. This can give a little couple words. Cole says, crime is a feature, not a bug of capitalism. How do we address the real issue of intentional scarcity? And Mark says, should we be more focused on ending the reasons for most crimes, which numerous studies have linked to poverty? You only find crime where you find cops. Yeah. I was going to say the link between poverty and crime is also quite complex. Because we have to be careful in the way that we frame that question, because it can lend itself to thinking about crime as predominantly just the work of the poor without taking into account elite crimes. But also, not everybody that's living in poverty is out committing all kinds of crimes, too. And so, I don't know if this necessarily answered the question, but I hope no one thinks that we are discounting the realities of actual harm. Those are real things, and they are often concentrated in exploited communities. And I think what abolition is trying to do is not deny that or disown it or ignore it, but actually to recognize that the current system that we have in place actually exacerbates those harms and doesn't actually do anything to alleviate the harms in the first place. Abolition as a political project isn't a project that's denying the reality of violence and harm. Or framing violence as only a product of the state, that people do harm people. And that's a real thing. We don't need to deny that. We need to actually confront it. 
And I think that's what the abolitionist project is trying to do is to say, there's other ways of handling this. And then yes, there has to be this larger systemic shift that actually totally reorganizes society in a way that provides healthcare and good paying jobs and this and that. Yep. That's the thing. If you starve communities of resources, you're going to create theft and petty crime and that kind of stuff. And again, that goes back to what you guys said about having to have that analysis of capitalism and bringing that into the conversation because it all connects. So if you guys want to let everybody know where they can find you, where they can find your content. I'm not on social media, so that makes it easy. But you can find our books at bookstores, particularly anarchist bookstores or any bookstores. Tyler and I have written Police Field Guide and edited a book, and then I've written a few other books. And so check those out. I would hope that you would do that. Yes, I'm also not on social. I, would be, I was reluctant to even do this. I know, I had to talk him into it. Well, we appreciate your guys' time, and I'll see what we can do to get your books in our RP bookshelf if they're not there already. So we want to thank you guys, your generosity with your time. This was great. Tyler, I would have no idea that you were resistant. Right <laughs> <laughs> when he starts talking, but it's just yeah. a start. But this was yeah. wonderful. And we want to thank everybody who came. And you know that Real Progressives needs your help. Share our stuff on social media. Read our articles. Listen to the podcast, Macro and Cheese. And we have a donation link on the website. And we have a Patreon. Kami John, you want to talk about all that? Yeah. If you go to our website, realprogressives.org. It's just a treasure trove of resources. And as you know, if you know the Macaron Cheese podcast, it just covers so many different topics and it's not just MMT centric necessarily. And if you want to hit us up on Patreon, throw us a few bucks. It is patreon.com slash real progressives. And we do appreciate our generous donors. And again, Hit us up on social media, TikTok, Facebook, all the regulars, and I guess we'll see you at the next one. Gentlemen, thank you so much. It means the world to me. I really appreciate the podcast. I really appreciated both of you tonight. And i got to think about an effective way of being a part of this because I think it's an important thing. So thank you for your efforts. Really like your work and happy to promote it in any way we can. Well, thank you all for having us and for everybody in the audience too. Appreciate it. It's been fun. All right, guys. Have a good night. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Thanks. Great conversation. Thanks. Good night. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Andy Kennedy. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressive.